Hello and welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer here with my co-host. Hello, I'm Harry Sigel. There you go. <laughs> and today we have the Bridget Bergen from WNYC on our first time on FAQ NYC, which is totally our bad, which is brilliant. <laughs> oh, it is so great to be here. I think that you were the greatest reporter this side of the Mississippi. <laughs> Harry and I wanted to have you here to talk about all things New York City elections because over the past few months, we've been trying to make sense of the New York City mayor's race. What's going on in Albany? Ranked choice voting. The state of the Board of Elections. The Brooklyn Borough Borough, uh, President's race. The Manhattan DA's race. All these city council races. Some judges. I mean, there's so much going on that New Yorkers are being asked to hold space and time for, to say nothing about what's going on in the world. Where are you in your reporting? And sort of what have you been keeping your eye on? Let's just start with this week. (laughs) <laughs> Since I know that you've been working a lot on BOE stuff for quite some time and contextualizing all of that for us. Yeah, I mean, I think we are at the turning point. I, I think you're right that we have, for those of us who, who make our livings and spend our time, you know, deeply immersed and focused on all of these different races and the candidates and their policies and how these races that are themselves administered, I think we are now actually crossing into the point where, as we all start to emerge from our homes to a greater Mm -hmm. degree, that we are vaccinated, that you're going to run into your friend at the dog park or at a coffee shop, you know, actual human interaction and say, hey, what do you think about insert candidate and, Mm -hmm. you know, what has happened as of late? And I think suddenly we are we are sort of seeing that that shift in, in in both people's attention and their interest and their appetite um not entirely you know certainly we've seen polls that say most people are still undecided mm-hmm. but i think we're at that point where things are changing and kind of the stuff that we see animating you know our our friends and colleagues and you know etc on twitter is actually going to start transferring into like real life human people having thoughtful conversations. I think one of the things that's really interesting that's happening right now, when you think about at least in the mayor's race, you know, we started at this point where we had this incredibly, incredibly crowded field. You know, if you were to include everyone who filed to run for mayor, mm-hmm. upwards of 40 candidates, but we have had a winnowing. And while there's still a a large number of candidates, you know, more than half a dozen, dozen, that winnowing has, you know, lent itself to shaping a conversation where we are talking about it within the Democratic primary specifically, you know, who are the centrist and moderate candidates and what do they represent and who are the more left-leaning candidates and and why is it that the more centrist and moderate candidates at this point seem to be doing better in some of this limited initial public polling and and therefore, what are the progressives doing in response to that? Which brings me to answer your initial question, which is what have <laughs> I been focusing on this week, which is where are some of the progressives landing? And what we know as of, you know, 
Just recently, uh, the Working Families Party, which, mm-hmm. you know, is an umbrella or, you know, a minor third party, but an umbrella organization that pulls together labor unions and community groups and sees itself, I think, more so, particularly in primaries, as as a vehicle for pushing candidates leftward, um, has made its endorsement and is among the few organizations to actually engage with ranked choice voting and has issued a ranked choice endorsement, mm-hmm. picking Scott Stringer as their first choice, Diane Morales as their second choice, and Maya Wiley as their third choice. You know, I talked to a lot of people who were a part of those conversations in, you know, the recent days who were pushing for a different candidate. And so part of what I think that endorsement tells us is there isn't necessarily cohesion on the left for one candidate, but there is a desire to take advantage of the strategy that is ranked choice voting to avoid letting one of the more moderate candidates sort of run away with it, um, pointing specifically at Eric Adams and uh, Andrew Yang. So I've got a question about these progressive candidates, and we saw the, for our listeners, our listeners are super smart, but just as a reminder, June 22nd is the primary uh, date for the mayoral election and all these subsequent uh, citywide elections. Um, Are you feeling like some of this lack of progressive fervor that we've seen thus far. And as you've stated several times, the polling is a little miscellaneous um, or a lot miscellaneous, but this, this kind of constant Yang Adams, I would even put Donovan in that category uh, stability. Is that a, a byproduct of some sort of like de Blasio fatigue or like a de Blasio backlash of this idea of progressivism or is it that the progressive candidates in Stringer, Wiley, and Morales just aren't necessarily resonating with the wider scale of New Yorkers because New York isn't necessarily a progressive town? It's just a myriad of blue, but it's not deep, deep blue the way the rumors would have us think it is. You know, I think it's that's a really interesting question. And it, I think we're going to see. <laughs> I don't. I don't, okay. I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. I think that there is the theory that there is a growing progressive movement within New York City. You know, obviously, it is where Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was able to catapult, mm-hmm. you know, to national relevance, ousting Congressman Joe Crowley, fourth most powerful Democrat. In Congress, it is where Congressman Jamal Bowman, now Congressman Jamal Bowman, ousted Elliot Engel, long-serving mm-hmm. chair of foreign affairs. I think it's likely where uh, Congressman Mondaire Jones would have, had he been forced to primary Nita Lowy, mm-hmm. you know, could have ousted her, but she opted to retire. Um, but that's congressional level. So, like, absolutely, which local? which. Which is interesting because the difference between a congressional district and a citywide race is, you know, you can speak to the needs of a community where you may have sort of an activist segment. Turnout has to be strategic Mm -hmm. in terms of just what you need to win that. Obviously, there's no ranked choice voting in state Mm -hmm. and federal elections. But on the flip side of that, I think progressives would argue that they have a movement that extends beyond that. And they would point to someone like a Tiffany Caban who came within 
50 some odd votes of mm-hmm. defeating a Melinda Katz, certainly the more centrist candidate for the Queens DA primary just a few years, couple of years ago. So there, I think, is a sense that there is a broader movement. And in some ways, these citywide primaries are really, really a test for that. And I don't think that we know. I mean, one of the things that a group like the Working Families Party would point to here was an organization um, that has often been in the sights of Governor Cuomo and more moderate and centrist Democrats. They were facing, you know, annihilation for their ballot line in November. Uh, They organized. They drew on the progressive resources, you know, this essentially this kind of uh, superstar lineup from Elizabeth Warren and AOC and Jamal Bowman and state leaders, Alessandra Biagi, Jessica Ramos, Yulene New, to educate voters about what the threat was, about why they needed to keep this ballot line, what it meant, and turned out 220,000 upwards voters way beyond what they needed to save their ballot line. And they would argue it was within the margin of what helped Bill de Blasio in 2013 secure his victory. So I don't know if I would attribute the sort of rise of the moderate as de Blasio fatigue or a lack of a progressive movement in the city. But I do think that there is a test to see, like, what does the progressive movement, what can they really organize? So I have a few thoughts here, and then uh, (laughs) I'll bring it back to you to make some sense of them, I hope. Scott Stringer got the endorsements of almost all of the young women of color in particular who were part of the anti-IDC movement, who are sort of the new rising power to some extent in Albany. Still rising. We'll see how far. That hasn't translated, at least at this point, and I think we talked about this with, with the controller last week when he was on, if memory serves, that hasn't translated into a ton of support yet from their followers uh, that's registered in the polling we have to date or anecdotally in terms of real enthusiasm for milk toast, you know, controller, uh, older white guy, despite him taking a real gamble at that point when these didn't look like winners and, and he really did put himself out on a limb and now is trying to collect the benefits. Maybe this is because when you offer yourself as a uh, avatar of an almost leaderless movement, it's harder to just bring followers along when you're making political deals. I'm not sure. Um, at the same time, you brought up uh, Tiffany Caban. She came so close in that Queenswide race, which, which is pretty incredible, and even more so because the DA races are state races. So, so you don't even have the same money limits you do otherwise, which make it even harder for an insurgent. Basically, people can give tens of thousands of dollars. But my theory has been that the DSA in particular and the WFP to some extent do what the old party bosses used to do and actually talk to, respond to, and turn out voters. And that that's actually hugely advantageous when there are not that many voters and it's almost a fixed pool. Because if you can bring out a new 10% of people, that's gigantic. In the mayoral race, it's not that big in a Democratic primary. You know, we're talking about a few hundred thousand votes to win, but it's a lot bigger. And so getting the energy to actually turn out enough new voters to play is difficult. And then this gets chicken and eggy. And the, the WFP is endorsing pretty late, and I, I, I think a little nervous about it. 
And as a, a test run, the DSA has decided to stay out to, to deal with city council races. AOC has yet to endorse. And I feel like nobody wants to get that far out ahead of their skis when they realize they might not be that powerful given the dynamics of this election. So, so that's what I've been thinking about. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So uh, I, I think on the issue of some of those early endorsers for Stringer, um, Assemblymember New or Senator Ramos, I do think part of what has been happening there is they have day jobs and they were really busy negotiating what was one of the most difficult state budgets. And, you know, it, it, as part of their uh, the representation and their advocacy, we're taking, you know, tough positions advocating for increasing taxes on the wealthy, the excluded workers fund, you know, things that like things that in a different era in New York state budgets, you couldn't necessarily imagine being accomplished. But for the fact, we have a governor who is facing this this cloud of scandal, which also, I think, has taken away from the attention and the coverage and the campaigning of during this mayoral race, which is leads me back to the begin my initial point, which is I think we're at a turning point. We have a state budget. We have, you know, seen an infusion of federal funds, which is changing, I think, will change some of the debate around the city budget, though I think the city budget will become a point of of contention and negotiation and campaigning for some of these candidates. It may also sort of make, sort of resurface some of what we experienced last summer in terms of the energy around where do we spend our city dollars? You know, what does defund the police actually mean? And that will really start to differentiate who these mayoral candidates are um, and and what these candidates who may be popular by name right now, what they stand for. If anything. <laughs> um, and then I do think, I mean, you you said it, Harry, but I think there, for a candidate like Stringer, you know, there is a challenge in trying to be the the standard bearer of a progressive movement that in many ways has been about about representation and about giving voice to people who have not been um, heard by the city government and to be someone who people will argue and they will make the case that, you know, Stringer has been among the most progressive representatives, but it is still difficult when you have been a career politician and you are an older white male to make the case to the city's electorate, particularly when the last white male who was elected as the progressive champion didn't exactly live up to the expectations people had of him. <laughs> so, I, you know, it, it's... Bridget Bergen coming in with the hot understatements of the, of the <laughs> So... So, Bridget, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this, largely because so many listeners for WNYC rely on you to help sort of decipher and dissect so many of the nuances of New York City and New York State politics. And ranked choice voting is something that we've talked about on the podcast. You know, New York One, Errol Lewis is always trying to just give sort of tidbits about what it is and what it isn't, reminding people that even if you love a candidate, you cannot vote for them five times because you will essentially be voting for them zero times. That ballot will be thrown out. 
Um, you know, this is the first time a major city like New York City is going to give voters an option of voting for up to five people uh, out of the myriad of candidates that are there. We know that New York City ballots are famously an eight-point font and double negative language, so you can't not, not, <laughs> never do this on the ballot. Um, we know that there's been some conversations about training and adequate training of people who work at polling stations based on a whole host of factors. So we've got this new system coming in, and it's also four months earlier than we are accustomed to voting in mm-hmm. municipal elections. So we're used to going to the, the polls in September. Now we've got to scurry and go in June with this new system. Um, where where are we on that? <laughs> and, you know, in, in your assessment on sort of educating the public. And also, how does that translate into a conversation about the Board of Elections, which you have been, God bless you, spending a ton of time trying to help us figure out. But many of us fear that we will not have results on the evening of June 22nd. And we know a lot of voters feel like if they don't get results on election night, the longer we wait for results, the greater the skepticism folks have for the actual results when they finally come out. And in a sort of post-Trumpian era where that conversation is still lingering in so much of our discourse, But I think a lot of folks don't trust the Board of Elections and don't trust the process and fear that it could take not just days, but maybe weeks as we decipher different neighborhoods. And we know that based on education level of not just poll workers, but, you know, sort of how the education in the communities, various communities has been about ranked choice voting. We might have certain districts where we're throwing out X percent of ballots because that education hasn't been uh, adequately uh, disseminated to various groups. So can you kind of walk us through some of those concerns? Yeah, I mean, where we're at is we've had, you know, these four special elections where the board has had to run ranked choice voting elections and then tally results. Uh, so it, that's a good thing uh, mm-hmm. because it means that They have, you know, we know that our machines have no problem reading these ballots, and we know that the board is not going to be entirely unfamiliar with how to administer these elections. These are super small sample sizes. Uh, Turnout in these special elections is in, like, single percentages. That being said, proponents of ranked choice voting – have done some exit polling through Edison Research from people who have actually voted in these elections, and by and large, the experience has been positive. You know, it the ranking, the voting itself is not necessarily going to be the complicated part, even if people go in not knowing that that's what they're going to be asked to do. There will, without a doubt, be voters whose ballots are spoiled because, as you described, they either overvote, they pick the same candidate multiple times, or they decide to what's called bullet vote, pick just one candidate, but they pick the candidate that ends up being the last place finisher. And if they only pick one candidate, if there's a subsequent tally and their vote has nowhere to go, well, then their vote's exhausted, that ballot's exhausted. 
what we've seen so far is that wasn't a majority of votes in these special elections so far. But I think seeing something like an endorsement from the Working Families Party that is a ranked choice vote uh, endorsement is a good thing because it then puts the onus not just on some of these institutional players like the Campaign Finance Board or the Board of Elections for educating voters, but it puts it on the candidates to actually have an incentive to help voters understand how the voting process is going to work. Now, this is the thing I'm going to tell you, Dr. Greer, Mm -hmm. and you're going to probably need to get comfortable with this. Secrets. Is it a secret? It is something that we need to make extremely, extremely public. Okay. You are not going to have final results when the polls close. You are not. You are going to have (laughs) unofficial election night returns. Now, P.S., that's what we always used to get. That's what Mm -hmm. we've always gotten. But because ranked choice voting requires the board to sort of look at the entire universe of ballots, Mm -hmm. their practice, which may change some ahead of June, but their practice has been to wait until they have their entire pool. Mm -hmm. That would mean waiting for all the absentee ballots to arrive. Because uh, of New York state election law, we have until a week after the primary for those absentee ballots to arrive. And as long as they are postmarked by election day, they should count. Similarly, military ballots, overseas military ballots, have until a week after the election to arrive. And with ranked choice voting, that's June 29th. And so, as in previous primaries, if you got 40% plus one or whatever it was, we could do the mathematical projections, whatever the absentee ballots were. If I won by, if a candidate won by X percent, we knew that we didn't really have to worry about mail-in and absentee ballots because the candidates already won. With ranked choice voting, we can't actually just put those aside because we have to factor them in with the five of the ranking. So right. we must wait until the 29th. Is that what you're saying? I'm sort Yes. Of, yes. Of? That is <laughs> okay. technically, and that would be, I think, how the board would justify their process right now. Now, there's an argument to be made that absentee ballots could be opened as they're received and that you don't necessarily need to wait until you have everything to start to kind of figure out what you have. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Would that need to be a a, a law that's passed or some sort of, who would make that decision, do we know? So there there are some things that are the board's procedures. There's one proposed piece of legislation that's already been introduced and is expected to be amended from City Council Member Lander, that has to do with the board releasing its initial tally of um, results by the Friday after the election. So on election night, we will know something. Like on election night, if somebody has more than 50%, uh, now imagine that in an an eight-way mayoral race, but if someone had over 50%, it is unlikely that that person is going to drop below it unless a tremendous number of people have voted absentee. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that more people are vaccinated, I think there is an expectation that while there will still be a, a, 
a substantial number of absentee ballots in this election, that we're not going to be looking at numbers necessarily like what we saw last June when we were at the height of the pandemic and, and everybody was staying inside. The one other thing to keep in mind. Oh, gosh. Now, <laughs> now <laughs> New York, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about all the ways that New York's election law has changed and needs to change. One of the ways that lawmakers did change it, though, was to try to, to prevent disenfranchisement. Uh, and one of the things they did is they created a what's called a cure process. And what that does is if, for example, you submit an absentee ballot and you forgot to sign it, well, before, you know, in, in last year's primary, well, that ballot could have gotten tossed because that is a defect and, you know, boom, you're done. Because of this change, the board is required to contact you, say, hey, Dr. Greer, hey, Harry Siegel, oh. we got your absentee ballot. You forgot to date it. You forgot to sign it. Um, the envelope's not sealed. Like all of the absurd things that you could potentially have been disqualified for in the past. And you have an opportunity to correct that. But that builds more time into the process. <sighs> and so it's a reform that makes things better, but these are the things that will slow the turnaround of between when we vote and when we know who the winner is, but they're not necessarily bad things because mm -hmm. they're about like fixing a process that has a lot of flaws. Speaking Speaking of a lot of flaws. All right, so pot is legal in New York now. Take a deep breath. <laughs> Take this in. Like <laughs> Oakland, Berkeley, St. Paul, Cambridge. Like we are not pioneering uh, ranked choice voting. In fact, we're, we're figuring out sort of clumsily, not, not, not on this podcast, but generally, this whole new system of voting very much in real time, candidates, consultants, people are following the race and all that. As you noted, New York City, and I know this is going to hurt for all of us because we're here, we're here, and this is the center of the world, but New York City is weak and feeble. Like, we can't even do our own voting system right unless, like, uh, Albany lets us. So, mm -hmm. obviously, if you have ranked choice, you want to start counting these ballots as soon as we can, but the state hasn't really got around to it, and maybe they'll hold that hostage for another 10 years. Awesome. Last thing here for the big, deep thought. Andrew Yang, man. So New York's so great and we're so special. But look, like the guy who was like not trying to be president or anything, but like, hey, I'm enthusiastic and, and young and, and building a brand and trying to uh, seed an idea or take credit for an idea that's coming out in any case in the presidential race. He's sucking up all the attention in the room. And maybe that changes as we get closer and other candidates go up on TV. But it makes me feel embarrassed and humbled as a New Yorker. Right at my day job at the Daily Beast, people are pitching stories about this election. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I, I can't bring our readers to care at this point about any of the ins and outs of this. Um, and, and it feels like like a city that thinks of itself as so unique and distinctive and really at the center of things that, that this is just like a little parochial race where, where we don't quite control the rules. And it, it's hard to actually get 
a larger world or even a lot of the people who are here to care. Am I, am I wrong to feel that sad about things or, or, or <laughs> some perspective, please? I mean, I, I was joking with someone recently, like, you know, there's the saying about New York City mayors who try to run for president and, you know, how, how, you know, look, if, if history is any lesson, it's, it is not a career path. Um, <laughs> but perhaps running for president is the way you become mayor of New York City. You know, we'll flip it on its head. I, you know, not to keep going back to it, I think we're at a turning point this week you know, where we see another instance of police violence against an unarmed Black man. There was a a bike protest in the city last night where, you know, Duante Wright was at the, the focus of it, and Andrew Yang decided to participate in it. By the end of that protest, many of the participants made very clear that they were not happy with his attendance and felt like he was taking that moment for the media and and didn't see his his policies aligning with you know the movement the black lives matter movement the movement to defund the police he in so far has been incredibly effective at sort of picking these moments of getting media attention for doing the thing that new yorkers are doing that was a moment that um, I think people are going to be looking at more critically. And then, as as I said before, as we get into the conversation about our city budget and where our money is going and what happened when they were supposed to take a billion dollars out of the city police budget last year and actually maybe didn't quite do it. And we think about this rise in gun violence that is hurting communities in such uneven ways but in devastating, devastating ways. Like, those are the conversations that are going to become, I I think, increasingly central to this debate. And and Andrew Yang may have some perspectives that we haven't yet heard from him. So I I don't, I'm not discounting any candidates. I see your face, Dr. Greer, but I, I, (laughs) you know, I I will, I will bring my, my, my public media, you know, like open-mindedness to this, Mm -hmm. but I look forward to the debates. I appreciate um, the fact that, that there's maybe some more scrutiny being applied to all of them um, because initially I think, you know, I think Yang was, he he came in and he sort of was taking up all the oxygen. But it's a real job and we're going to need people to sort of, I mean, we've got two months now. I mean, what do you think, you know, as we start to see these ads go up? Because New Yorkers aren't really accustomed to ads, a barrage of ads. You know, I mean, during presidential elections, we largely get ignored. Why would a presidential candidate waste their money in New York when they could focus on, you know, Georgia, or Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, oh, yeah. Florida, Ohio? You know, we're not used to it. I think the last time we really saw a barrage of ads was maybe 2001 with, with Bloomberg. And then when he had various campaigns that he was working on, I mean, I think the most famous time was like the soda ban ads, right? That people are still talking about. But even the ads of 2013 weren't, it just didn't feel like a barrage the way I, th- I think a lot of folks are bracing themselves for, you know, Yang's got 
the soon-to-be PAC money and lots of money from, you know, his presidential and obviously right-wing people love him too, so they're interested in donating. You've got Sean, my daddy's giving me $2 million and the coffers are still open, Donovan. You know, Stringer's got some money from various entities. Um, Ray McGuire's got, you know, his own cash. We still haven't seen his tax returns, but we're pretty sure that he's got some good Citibank cash. So we're about to see like ads on ads on ads. Do you think that that will actually make a difference? I mean, some candidates are going to have to introduce themselves uh, and others are going to actually have to talk about policy or backstep some things that they may have said or done in the past. Yeah, I think it's about to get, it's a, it's going to be a lot. Uh, my friend Ben Max said it uh, on Twitter. I think we're going to go from voters being like mayoral okay. election when to if Stop you give, calling if you, me. If you send me one more mailer, if I right. see that ad one more time. Right. And, and I mean, I think what you're talking about there is really, we have this public financing system in New York City that is, those who, those proponents who think it is like among the best systems, right, that allows people to, um, encourages people to get support from the grassroots at a, a minimum level to then have access to a, a significant amount of public matching funds. The challenge are these independent expenditure groups, which are going to be funding a lot of those ads that you're describing, which are supposed to not coordinate in any way with the candidate. And I'm sure, I, yes. Um, <laughs> Again, you Sean see Donovan's my face. Dad. Your Sean face. Donovan's dad. Hello. <laughs> So, you know, he Brian Lair asked him about it this week and said he said I'm he's not coordinating with anyone with his dad. He's not coordinating with They're his dad. They're probably just maybe they don't talk much. I don't know what their relationships <laughs> like. Um but I, I mean, the I don't other know part, if my dad listens to this podcast, but I would not talk to my dad for a month if he actually gave me 2 billion dollars. <laughs> Sorry dad. I mean, I'll talk to you on June 23rd if you're going to hit me off with 2 million dollars. I think that there is something just in what we have at least seen so far. I mean, as you talked about, you know, where some of that big money is coming from and where it's going, it, it starts to go into all of what we say about like why, why women candidates struggle mm -hmm. uh, because the electability, the viability questions. The money question. People just don't give the women money. money. Question. And they damn None sure don't give women of color money at the same rates. Please. And and any of those IEs that we just talked about, not a single candidate IEs, not a single one of them is a single candidate IE for any of the women in this race so far. That's independent expenditure? Otherwise, you know, also known as super PAC and dark money and, you know. All those things. So I, I think that is going to be a real challenge for some of the field. The women in the field, particularly, I, do I think some of these candidates who are still in introduction mode can you go from introducing yourself to being a viable candidate um, in two months by like you know a barrage of ads and having celebrity endorsements and right because it seems like know. everyone's got celebrities. I mean, you know, celebrity endorsements nowadays just feel like ugh. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I, I saw Jay-Z and Puffy right. and Nas endorse McGuire. And I was like, I don't know, Jay-Z, you need to sit this one out because you will get no one from Brooklyn after what you did to black folks pushing us out because of Barclays. But 
Here's the thing. Before we let you go, hold on. Harry has a follow-up. I was just going to say that your favorite rapper's favorite rapper is impressive. Your favorite rapper's <laughs> favorite politician is maybe, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Biggie's my favorite rapper. Jay-Z's my least favorite rapper. I'm putting that on wax today. Like, that's always, everybody who knows me knows that Biggie is my everything. Jay-Z is not. Um, and the Barclays thing still has me hot, to say nothing of the NFL stuff. But that's a different podcast, but we'll talk about that. But before we let you go, I want to sort of get your thoughts on a few things. One, Brooklyn Borough president. Two, Manhattan DA's race that doesn't have ranked choice voting because it's technically a state race. So they're just sort of first past the post and let's just, let's make it happen. And Three, any city council races that are tickling your fancy in particularly? So Brooklyn Borough President's Race, I I, I was at Coney Island on Friday. Mm. You know. Did you ride the roller coaster? I did not. Oh. I did not ride the roller coaster. It, it was it, it no felt judging. like a lot <laughs> to be there in general. Um, did you at least have a hot dog? I didn't. I was really focused. I I was I was <laughs> I had my sights set on uh, the lieutenant governor that day. Okay. He was out in public for people to actually shout questions at for what it was worth. Um, okay. The dynamic between Antonio Reynoso and, and who he, I see him uh, aligning himself with, you know, talking with Brad Lander, full disclosure, I, this is not a race that I have been following at the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, but also see, I think that goes for most people, which yeah. is why I think Harry and I are touch concerned because <laughs> Brooklyn has what two plus million folks, and many folks aren't following this very crowded race that has some interesting gender and racial dynamics going on as well. Yeah, I mean, I I saw uh, Councilmember Carnegie also sort of make, working the circuit, um, and so to me that the race right now feels like. Those are two of the leading contenders. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me what you're thinking about the race. I like right now, I, I'm still in exploratory phase and I'm just like, Greer, hustle up. We've got two months. Um, you know, I mean, I, I really, I don't have thoughts. It just seems a little bit like the mayor's race where it's like, it's a lot of quantity and I'm going to have to sift through to see who CV. I guess most closely aligns to what I care about, question mark. I mean, it, it just, and it's, it for such an important job, it doesn't seem like it's getting a lot of airtime. And that's why yeah. I was curious as to your thoughts on it, just because. I think if Sherwane had entered the race, uh, Sherwane McRae, uh, the first lady of New York, uh, according to Mary Bill de Blasio, that would have. Architect of Thrive NYC. Mm-hmm. That might have generated some interest. But as it is, things are so crowded. And and part of, I think, this DSA down-ballot strategy is like the council, three-quarters of the seats are open. Roughly 1.25 million New Yorkers are running for them. You know, so it just – it doesn't take that many votes and it's sort of that much work if you can get people a little excited to really shift the balance of power there in a way you can't do uh, in the mayor's race. And then in the Manhattan DA one where like Trump is looming over everything, right? There's this investigation, but Vance is going. Someone else is going to inherit that. This office has tremendous powers and like insane cream, right? Because they have all these big cases, they get all this money and then they get to give it out to everyone else. 
And I, I think this might be big news, but there's like also no polling. So it's hard to say. Um, Alvin Bragg just, just won endorsements from uh, Zephyr Teachout, you know, the law professor who ran against Cuomo uh, and from former DA candidate and uh, friend of the show, Yanis uh, 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 Martin. So so I don't know if you have any idea what's going on there, but but uh, I, I can assure you I do not. And most of the people I talk to in Manhattan do not. Uh, and it seems it seems so high stakes. So here's a here's the one thing that I feel like I can tell you that I think this is the race. If if on primary night you need to know the results of something, we'll know this one. You're gonna know this one because ranked choice voting doesn't matter. Um, this is you know you're gonna win by 23 percent because you've got this crowded field and you're gonna become the Manhattan DEA nominee. Well, you know so be it because it that's that's how this field is gonna break. So I think that is interesting. I think, to your point, and my colleague Gwen Hogan has been doing some really good reporting on the the Wall Street money that is pouring into this race, um, and the the different positions on criminal justice that some of these candidates are taking, reflective of of the time that we are in and the debates that we're having about what the criminal justice movement should be about, um, but talking about shrinking the size of the office um, and limiting the types of sentences that you would be seeking for potential offenders. It's really interesting. I, you know, because there are so many races and you layer on top of that, that, you know, the top Democrat in the state is facing like a constant drip of, scandal, whether it is related to allegations of sexual misconduct, uh, a toxic work environment, misusing state resources, obscuring data, you know, breaking through that, I think has been a real challenge for these candidates. And that stuff, all of the stuff related to Cuomo and the various investigations is not going away. And so that's going to remain a challenge. But I think you know, in terms of what has kept some of the folks who are are going to be active in these races, whether as surrogates or just interested parties, like they are going to be able to engage. We're going to see some more of that. We're going to see people out more. We're going to have debates. Mm-hmm. And just buckle your seatbelt and, you know, clear out your inbox because oh. you're going to be getting it's, it's, it's they're they're coming for us. Right. Oh, Bridget Bergen, how we love you so. Um, thank, thank you, you so Bridget. much for joining us and thank helping you. us fun. make sense of this bananas time. You know, our, our friend Ben Max usually spends election night with us. And um, <laughs> I know he listens to the podcast. So hopefully he'll come and spend the evening of June 22nd with us as well. Um, but I think you are correct in helping us temper our expectations as to what we will and will not know. Yeah. The evening of June 22nd. And that is incredibly helpful. And we're so appreciative. You joined us today for the first Thank of many you. on FAQ NYC. <laughs> Shout out to Bridget Bergen of WNYC. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. We recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. 
A special thank you to our guest, Bridget Bergen of WNYC. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be good, be strong. We'll see you next week.